You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Sieben and I, Nils Kastrolansen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today, we're going to deviate a bit from our usual format, because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Andreas Kleno, a true trend-following author, trader, investor, and a good friend of the podcast. And uh, so let me start by saying welcome to you, uh, Andreas, to the show. And as usual, let me say good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hope you're doing well today on this Sunday. Thank you. Great to be here. Hey, guys. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning. Yes. Hey, hey, everyone. Um, now, of course, it's really great to uh, have you on the show, uh, Andreas. Uh, we very much look forward to diving into to your world and what you've learned from the many years in the trend-following world, but also from trying and practicing a lot of other ways of extracting profits from the markets. Um, but before we do, we normally just do a quick review of the past week from the lens of a trend follower. So while you have an extra sip of your coffee, we will quickly go through some of the highlights uh, from last week. I hope that uh, sounds good. Now, of course, Jerry Mortz, in order to make as much time with Andreas today, let's uh, do a quick roundup. Um, from my point of view, anyways, there wasn't much that happened uh, this week. Uh, of course, the S&P, as usual, up a little bit uh, in the first full week of, of 2020. Uh, we saw a little bit of a reversal in uh, the energy markets as we had a kind of a de-escalation of the tension in the Middle East, at least for now. Um, and of course, there were also some uh, other um, small uh, moves in the markets, um, but generally kind of a um, yeah uh, lower tension uh, meant a little bit lower uh, uh, risk on and certainly in the in the energy sector. Moritz, I always come to you as you know, just to hear how your week was. Um, anything that stood out? Uh, so so weak. Um, I think what has stood out is um, I got got longer and crude. It's a long position that I already had on, but um, uh, you know, due to last week's Friday's event and the spike higher, I opened up another long position, which immediately I started to regret <laughs> because, uh, like you were saying, it's been mean reverting and uh, you know been selling off. So so the crude position is is at a loss. At least the new one, the older ones are still doing fine. I also got a bit longer in gold. That's a nice position to have. I had it on for quite some time, uh, but it's made new highs um, and um, and I've become longer. So that's good. And, um, you know, the week was, like I said, so-so. I mean, the, the, the bonds, I'm still long. Um, they rallied. And then, you know, when kind of like the the, the, the noise of the risk and, and all the uncertainty about that, um, uh, problem in Iran calmed down a bit. The bonds didn't really sell sell off that much. They kind of like stayed where they are. So that was good. And the equity markets, I mean, we've been repeating this for weeks. It is absolutely fascinating how relentless and how strong they are uh, these days. So being long the equities is the way to go. I think I made about a percent last week. So um, fine with that. Good start to the year. Absolutely. As we talked about last week, Moritz, if you do that every week, you'll have a great year. So uh, oh, yeah, keep it up. I'll definitely compounded 1% per week. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> 
disclaimer, disclaimer. Anyways, um, kind of similar picture on our side. Uh, certainly, um, I think we eked out a little profit for the week overall. Um, equity sectors did well. Currencies did okay. Uh, some of the smaller commodities did also all right. Live cattle, actually, I see, and uh, cocoa was okay. But, you know, the losses uh, that we did see uh, also focusing on the energies, probably a little bit uh, net net loss in, in fixed income, but nothing uh, major. So, um, yeah, still hanging in there uh, in the new year. Um, what about you, uh, Jerry? Um, single stocks, any other markets that stood out on your side? Well, I think what's uh, sticking out on on our side, and what I'm seeing, what I'm enjoying seeing, is um, the rallies in the commodities. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Our shorts, we're getting out of our shorts, and we're either getting long, almost long, or we are, are already long with you know with a small winner or a small loser. I mean, I think the crude thing, you know, it's I got a, uh, went a little long crude, and then. You know, small loss. I mean, it's it's a material. You know, it's kind of a big day and a big crazy move, but still, it's probably you know probably going to go back up. And uh, but you know, I'm seeing sugar and um, of course the metals, and it's kind of interesting to see that uh, there's some strength in the commodities and individual commodities, uh, wheat, bean oil. Yeah, so it's that's what we need. We need some uh, large trends and the commodities, which is not happened in a long, long time. Absolutely. But as I said in the beginning, we are, of course, um, very fortunate uh, to have Andreas uh, with us today. It's been a while, actually, Andreas, since you were on on the podcast uh, as a solo interview, um, but it was a very popular episode, I remember. So I think there's a lot of our listeners that uh, have uh, looked forward uh, to uh, for you to come back. And of course, you know, there might be still one or two listeners who uh, have not come across uh, your work. Um, you never know. So I think maybe as a framing of our conversation today, I don't think it would hurt to uh, maybe for you just to go back a little bit, talk about, um, you know, briefly um, kind of your own background and maybe perhaps also, you know, what were some of the key influences uh, on your own career um, and, and that impacted you um, to kind of steer you in the direction where you ended up going and, and where your journey has taken you. So why don't we start with that and then we all will have, I, I'm sure, lots of questions and you might have some topics you want to throw out to us. We'll keep it pretty casual. So uh, so maybe we just start with um, a little refresher uh, about your own background, Andreas. All right, sure. Sounds good. And uh, thank you for having me back again. It's It's been far too long. I was looking up before in my email threads when I when I met either of either of you guys last, and uh, well, you I met in, in I think half a year ago, but it's been a couple of years since I was on the podcast. I saw Morris five years ago, and I ran into Jerry briefly two years ago. Um, so I met my background. That's a that's, that's a big question. Um, where do I start? Well, first of all, I, I'm the first to admit I'm, I'm I'm a lucky monkey. I was in the right place at the right time, a few different places, a few different times in my life uh, that turned out to be. Well, critical for, for the long-term development. I guess the first time I, I was pretty lucky, right time, right place, was I was, uh, I was everybody claims to be, I was into computers before, <laughs> before it was cool, so to speak. Uh, I was one of those computer guys in the, uh, in the 80s, early 90s, when you kept those things quiet. You know, you didn't speak about computer knowledge back then. Uh, suddenly, I remember it being at 90, 
95, 96, probably 96 when the big dramatic change came when you know, computer knowledge turned from being some sort of semi-embarrassing hobby to a commercial, commercial negotiable asset and suddenly everybody's grandmother wanted to be in computers and nobody knew anything about it and the few of us who actually knew it since before well people were just throwing money at us for doing stuff that we all thought were really simple and frankly they were so I, I started my first computer company back in I think 95 maybe 96 it's been a while I'm getting old um, I was running that for a few years it was fun times it was in, in Sweden obviously which was well, hard to think these days, but it was a bit of the epicenter of, of much of the, the IT development at the time. That was fun for a few years, but I had this nagging feeling that it wasn't a grown-up thing to be doing. Um, I think 99, 2000, around there, I, I just graduated uh, business school, uh, Gothenburg. It was time to try something grown-up, so I, I got rid of all of this stuff. Had no foreknowledge, foresight, at all about this whole industry coming crashing down. I, I just exited the, the right time, pure dumb luck. I got a grown-up job, uh, so to speak. I had a grown-up job for five years and never again. Uh, it was fun for a while, but it didn't really fit my, my style and personality. I was middle management at Reuters, the financial information company that, well, depending on your point of view, no, either no longer exists or have changed name. Uh, they changed name, I don't know, three or four times since I left them. Um, yeah, I, I spent a few years there and I realized it's not really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life, uh, moving headcounts around the world and sitting in endless teleconferences discussing projects that probably never happens and project managers and product managers and program managers and whatever they're called and it's just bureaucracy and paperwork and nothing ever gets done in the end. Uh, that was my... I, I don't think that's specifically for Reuters, I think this big company and some, person, some people have personality for it and some don't and I, I think I, while I figured out how to rise in, in the ranks, I, I also figured out that the more I rose, the less fun it was because it had the less actual real things you get to do and the more time you get to spend in teleconferences discussing headcounts and not really what I want to do. Sure. Uh, guess I got lucky again when I left. I. I was in a state where I, I just felt like I, I had to get out of there before I get institutionalized. I realized that if I, if I stay too long, I, I become one of them and that, that's not going to work out. So I, I left, I was very lucky as in, I had some investment strategies, I had some ideas on what to do, and I kind of accidentally run into some people who had, uh, it sounds small now in, in, in hedge fund space, but they had about 50 million to invest and they needed somebody to actually do it. They had some ideas, but they needed somebody on the ground, they needed somebody to actually sit in an office and get it done, and they needed my, my, my strategies, my, my computer knowledge, and actually getting stuff done, and fit me perfectly. And people keep asking now, how do I replicate this? How do I, I want to get into the business? How do I find this? And I don't know, I, I, as I usually say, I, I slipped on a banana peel and I landed in the hedge fund business. Uh, so that's, um, that's how I got into the, the sharp end of asset management, really. <clears throat> uh, next lucky point, I guess, uh, I got into trend following at that time, and that must have been like 2005, 6, around there. Mm -hmm. 
And as we all know, in trend-following space, that was a pretty good time to get into the business. Everybody else got in in 2009 after the, the stellar year. But having been lucky enough to get into the business before I got to experience some of the, the uh, great profits that we all saw during that time, and you know, it's hard to claim that it's, it's, it's skill, it's I picked a strategy that happened to work great for the next few years. So that was, that was a great fun ride. Um, having been in at the right time, also on the on the theme of luck, uh, back then starting a hedge fund here in Europe was not particularly difficult in terms of, of regulatory environment. Nowadays it's a nightmare. Nowadays it's considerably more expensive. You need considerably more capital. It's a whole different ball game. The um, the barriers of entry have gone up dramatically, but I got in just before they changed. So it's a fun ride, and I mean, um, that leads me to, of course, long story, what do I do nowadays? A lot of stuff. I, I find it difficult to explain even to people in the business what I do for a living. We do a lot of stuff. Uh, we do some systematic models, we do, we allocate a lot to other hedge funds, uh, as you know, some of you have been in my office uh, pitching investments. Um, we uh, we do various uh, private equity projects. We um, we do some securitization of some uh, some um, ventures that we are running, especially in the states. Uh, we have some funds, and we try to concentrate on doing different things, uh, as in staying out of the the um, crosshairs of the of the, of the big guys. I, I don't want to go compete with David Harding. That that doesn't sound like a fun thing to be doing. Uh, I know who's going to win that contest, and it's not it's not going to be me. So. I, I want to do something different from what the big guys are doing. And Jerry, I include you in the big guys, so I don't want to go head to head with you either. I'd rather stay out of your way and do something slightly different than you guys and pitch something unique that the multi-billion dollar guys don't do. Yeah, brief brief summary. I'm not sure if I missed something. Yeah, brief brief summary of who I am and what I, what I do anyway. I, I wrote a couple of books along the way as well, as you know. You certainly did, and I'm sure we're going to make reference to uh, to to them today. I have a feeling that we might stay uh, focused on 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 one of the things you've done in your past, uh, at least for a while. But um, why don't we just kick it off? Uh, I don't know about uh, you, Moritz, if you want to just uh, dive in there with some of the things uh, you uh, thought about uh, as we were preparing for Andreas to uh, come on board. Yeah, sure. Um, hi, Andreas. First off, great to have you on our show. Um, looking forward to having a bit of a discussion with you. Um, we all know, I mean, you know, we, we know each other and also the books that you wrote. We know that you are a fan of systematic trend following. And I just wanted to ask you if, you know, in addition to trend following, uh, you're running any other strategies, um, non-trend strategies in a systematic way. I'm not talking about all the discretionary stuff, you know, which may be venture capital or private equities related, but systematic type of trading models, which are non-trend. Yeah, uh, we do some, it's always a matter of definition at the end, what's trend and what's not. And sometimes, sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's not. Uh, I am a fan of combining different type of models, as in models that sound counterintuitive to combine but can actually have a benefit when you do combine them like uh, if you run mean reversion models on a shorter time frame and combine them with a uh, long-term trend following you can get quite nice uh, complementary return you can get better better risk adjusted return by doing such things uh, I, I, I'm also a fan of uh, various type of term structure related um, models as in 
trading the uh, the implied yield of the term structure either outright or as a calendar uh, calendar spread type of, of model but simply basing models not on historical data but on the, uh, the difference between points in the term structure can be a, a very interesting type of model in my view okay understood thank you um you know niels and and jerry and i we are uh we're, you know pretty pure in our way that we trade trends um you know, when you add some other models to a trend portfolio, such as mean reversion, I mean, how do they relate to each other? I mean, you know, we know that mean reversion strategies, they definitely have a different distribution, you know, more left tail than the trend type of stuff uh, in general. Well, I'm not sure exactly how your mean reversion models work, but how do you go about this? Because, you know, it's very different to trend where, you know, we have uh, many, many losers, the occasional winner that, you know, then has a very long right tail, whereas mean reversion has, for the most part, I guess, a lot of winners, um, very small winners, and the occasional loser, which is then a very heavy loser. Absolutely agree. I mean, first of all, first, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with negative skew strategies, as long as you're very aware of what you're doing. I'm not a big fan of trading them myself, but I, I see no problem. I invest in, in some some trading models that definitely have a severe hidden negative skew. But as long as you're aware of it and you've done the math and you're happy with the, the, uh, the risk distribution, I, I think that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, I'd also say that there are different types of, of mean reversion models, meaning that you, know, you don't necessarily want to try to pick absolute bottom or, or tops. If you see the mean as being the trend, for instance, and what you're really trading is, well, dips in the bull market or vice versa on, on, a, on a bear market, it's not necessarily a negative skew type of strategy anymore. You do have a different return profile than you do in, in trend following. You have a different distribution of winners and losers. Uh, it stands pretty fine as a, alone as a model. It, it can hold its own as, as a model if you do it right, but I find it even more interesting combining with the trend model because you get different timings on the um, on the on the on the highs and the lows of the actual return. And the interesting part with combining it, I always thought, is that it might make sense for an investor, but not necessarily for an asset manager. Uh, the point there being that if you're marketing a strategy, if if your main goal is to raise money and market a, a hedge fund vehicle or trading strategy, you might have a different difficulty explaining a combined model. And if you're pitching it to a CIO of a larger say, family office or pension fund, you might also run into the problem that you're, you're trying to do that job for them. I mean, the, the CIO of the, of the large pension fund is going to say that, well, you know what, you're pitching me two combined, well, a combined strategy of two sub-strategies. I like one, not the other. And besides, it's my job to tell you you know, what, what allocation I want of each. That might cost you a ticket if you're pitching to the, to the big guys. But if you're doing it yourself, or you're trading your, your own money, or you're trading your money that's close to you, or, well, sticky money anyway, uh, it might make a lot of sense to combine models for better risk-adjusted return in the long end. Yeah, just following up, I think that uh, even if you're sort of uh, committed to more of a pure trend approach, at least from my point of view, it's basically... I still understand how all that is true and how I wish I could, I wish I had a shorter term or a mean reversion or something that was uh, different 
to the tr long-term trend following, uh, I know it would be fantastic addition. Uh, so the way that I've approached it over the year is sort of thinking, well, I don't know if I can uh, be successful in coming up with something uh, different and complementary to trend. I'll just be kind of uh, ridiculously intense on adding different markets and you know, single stocks. And so um, where I thought the indices might a little be a little bit more correlated with each other, so being able to go through and look at uh, thousands of stocks and maybe pick out 30 or 20 that are a lot different, hopefully, and then they become more different if you overlay the trend following. Uh, that's what I sort of have done. And then, uh, of course, adding to the markets that everyone else, all the other CTAs trade as well as they've become available. But I uh, can definitely see how, if you're able, you know, that's great to uh, add other things to your to your approach. Um, so, anyways, I've enjoyed over the years reading your books and listening and um, podcast and the, and reading articles. And so, um, I really enjoyed that one book, probably the first book of yours I read, where you um, talked about trend following and sort of uh, figuring out ways to replicate uh, how uh, some firms traded. And I thought that was really cool. And uh, so recently when you had your interview with Meb, I loved that interview, it was so good. And then it was a little bit, um, so I tweeted a lot of your quotes from there and uh, a lot of my Twitter followers, they love, you know, they love um, your books and, um, and so it was really a popular group of tweets. But what's great about you is we don't always agree and, I, and sometimes I don't really understand. So uh, that's where I'm going with my questions this morning uh, to sort of see if I can understand better and offer some alternatives to, I think, in areas where we're, you and I don't see eye to eye. But um, one of the quotes I tweeted was, uh, I think this is from you, trend following is very much a portfolio strategy. To run trend following on a single market is just begging to, to get hit badly. Trend following is about taking a lot of bets on, on very large number of markets independently. But then you say, risk is a matter of valuation change, or I'll say valuation change per unit of time, or potential value change per unit of time. If those components are not in, it's not risk. Risk per trade, I find to be a misunderstanding of what risk is. Um, and then I say, my comment is, uh, risk per trade is all that I've ever used. So can you um, sort of explain <laughs> more how, uh, Yep. I don't like uh, taking so I, when I think of trend following, you know, we're taking these small losses, and we're and we're, we're like you say, we're in lots of different markets. We're long, we're short, commodities, currencies, stocks. For me, single stocks, interest rates, taking these small losses, and then once we get kind of a profit in a trade, uh, you know, palladium or uh, emissions. You know, they've been some really good moves this year, and the bonds. Um, we sort of like use that as license to sort of to sort of say, hey, forget uh, volatility, forget uh, traditional standard deviation and risk measurements because it's now a profit. And in order for tr long-term trend following to be profitable, I've got to let it go, let it run, don't get out too quickly. And I have this freedom now uh, that it's just a profit. That's the only uh, criteria in my mind that I can kind of be more risk averse. Whereas on the original trade, I'm, maybe I'm trying to lose 50 basis points max uh, of my AUM, but if it's a profit, oh, 50, 500 basis points, who cares is, un, until my trend following exit gets hit? Yeah, uh, I guess I, I deserve to get beaten up on that one. Um, no, I mean, of course, you have to understand that when I say stuff like that, 
you're not actually the target group here. Uh, the target group that I'm trying to say these kind of things to are the retail traders that I often see make massive mistakes in understanding the very core concept of risk. That there's so much odd things out there, odd misunderstandings about risk. And you know, sometimes you have to push it a little bit to, to make a point. I think most people who are not familiar with the traditional view of risk, that is the financial, um, financial market type of risk, where you look at, at volatility, uh, you look at stress testing, you look at VAR measurement, these kind of things, you can say, is it useful for everybody? Uh, maybe not everybody, but is it useful to understand it? Certainly not. Uh, certainly, <laughs> useful to understand it, certainly yes. Sorry about that. Point being, a lot of people come from a point of view where they've only seen the, say the, the, the retail technical analysis, uh, money management view of how to, in, how to allocate money. And they come with a very skewed or, or very limited view of what markets are. I mean, you clearly understand proper risk and what proper risk is, and you have good reasons for working you know, in a different way that fits your portfolios. Very different thing. What I have a problem with, or well, not a problem, what I'm, what I'm trying to teach people really is to open their eyes to how risks tend to work on the professional side and what they can learn from it. The problem is a lot of people in the retail community, and I'd say people who listen to me, people who read my books are probably, well, what do I know? I'm guessing maybe 70% retail, I'd, I'd guess. Frankly, I don't know. Um, they tend to work in with methods sometimes that, that, that bother me, both in risk, uh, how they look at risk and how they look at return. Uh, I see that the large majority of, of private traders end up losing, if not all, but enough money to, to stop or, or reevaluate. They listen to various well gurus selling them some snake oil somewhere who talk in terminology which is so far away from the market and so far away from any sort of, of professionalism. It's sometimes you know you gotta you, you gotta make some statements to get people to, to, to pay attention and to look at the um, say more and more proper risk measurements. Now risk per trade can be a dangerous thing if you don't understand what you're doing. If you simply say I'm I'm gonna risk a thousand dollars in a trade if you're a retail guy. What's that mean? Is it a thousand dollars in the next Ten minutes is thousand dollars in the next ten weeks in this year. Those are absolutely very different things. Uh, there should be some sort of time component, even if that time component is not exactly defined. Most of the time, it is in my experience on the, on the professional side. I understand you work differently, and it worked great for you for what forty years. So who am I to argue with that? But you probably have some sort of time frame in mind. When you say you you take X risk per trade, you don't mean that's open for as little as long time as it takes. Like if it takes a year, it takes a year, right? Or if it takes 10 seconds, it's 10 seconds. You probably have more or less a time frame in mind. In mind. So it's just a different way of, of looking at, you know, more or less the same, more or less the same thing, I would, I would assume in the end. But I mean, I think you understand what I mean here, that if you look at normal quantification of financial risk, you're looking at some sort of, of understanding of, of volatility that you can't, just assume that because I have a theoretical stop loss at some point, and if that theoretical stop loss loses me a thousand dollars, there's the same risk on the end market. If you have a massive difference in volatility, you have, a, you have a gap risk, you have an event risk, you have different factors to look at, and risk is a much more complicated topic. 
So clearly, even in my, my books, when I try to explain a little bit more, you can't go into real details about risk, but you can try to explain the concepts. And I think that's beneficial to most people out there who have little exposure to it. Yeah, one of the things that's um, <clears throat> been a lot different over the past uh, 15 or 20 years is uh, the European CTAs introducing uh, vol targeting and uh, disagreeing with me essentially and saying no, um, the, the volatility and the standard deviation does matter. Clients think it matters, so we think it matters and we're gonna uh, adjust our systems and get to a new higher level than old turtle trend following and that silly simple stuff and we're going to do sort of a constant vol targeting. And so I've been sort of anti-vol targeting because it seems to me that it's sort of uh, can overwhelm uh, the systematic approach and the sample size of your back test. And if you uh, do a back test and, you're, and you uh, evaluate your system and its sample size based upon entries and exits, but then the vast majority of the trades are these daily or weekly vol targeting trades, it kind of overwhelms uh, the system and the back testing, and it um, it's just a I think it can uh, help you take small losses, uh, small profits, you know, versus uh, letting your profits run. So I didn't know if you had looked into that, if you were a fan yep. of more uh, managing um, the equity curve in that particular way as a part of a trend following system. No, I mean that's it's a tricky one. It all depends on what your what your purpose is. I'm not a big fan of of vol targeting per se, but it'll. Again, it depends on what you're doing. Now, if you're, I believe in today's world, and I, I think this is what you're implying as well. I mean, if you're, if you're aiming to run a very large portfolio, you're pitching to the big guys. You're, you're, you're pitching for the, the uh, 30, 40, 50 million ticket, uh, ticket sizes of, of larger players. Um, you, you're going to need vault targeting, I believe, going forward, for better or worse. I'm not necessarily a fan of it. I don't believe it really helps the long-term performance. Uh, I believe in using volatility to evaluate performance. That I think is quite important. Uh, I know some CTA funds that have extremely high result over time, but of course also they have ridiculous volatility and you, know, you can have 20% up and down sometimes in, in you know, two months they can be down 40% and next two months they're up 40% again and that's a wild ride. And uh, when you evaluate performance, you need to take that into account in my view. But the vault targeting is a tough one. I mean, first you need a substantial portfolio to, to do that, to implement that in, in reality in, uh, on a futures portfolio. Uh, I never tried to implement that on a futures portfolio. I'd say uh, less than half a billion, it probably doesn't make any sense to look at it. I haven't seen vault targeting really enhance long-term results, but it, I, I get the point of view. I get the point of view. If you're a large uh, CIO, you're a large, large allocator, you're allocating billions to various managers, you need to have some sort of uh, predictability in your um, standard deviations. I, I get it from that point of view. It's a tough one. Um, I'll ask one more question, then I'll let you take over, Niels. I have a lot more, but yeah. So um, I know uh, you've written some articles and books, and um, one of the uh, sentences or paragraphs was something, or the title maybe have been something along these lines, which is uh, trend following doesn't work on stocks. And uh, so I wanted to get uh, your explanation for that, given that, um, unfortunately for us, stocks have been the best trending markets and trend following has probably worked the best on stocks over all the other markets that we've traded over the past you know, 10 years, I guess. 
So exactly what do you mean uh, when you when uh, you've you've uh, talked about that subject of stocks and trend following? Yeah, that's that's a good one. Actually, this is a bunch of years ago. That's a good one. I remember you sent me a mail off of that one as well. Um, okay, let me explain the background slightly on that one. Uh, you see, at the time I written one book. I'd written a book about futures trend following. And then I was in some sort of interview. I can't remember what kind of podcast, uh, journalist, magazine, whatever it was. But I was in some interview. They asked me about trend following on stocks, and I, I described, I discussed in, in a high level the difference really on what I think is the differences between stocks and, and futures. And I didn't say a word about it not working on stocks. Then I, I get some mail later with some I don't know what it was some other, some podcaster or what it was, I, I got some mails saying this guy just said that you claim, you claim the stocks don't trend and trend following doesn't work on stocks and uh, well, I thought, I, I actually haven't, never actually said that but you know, hey why not, let's, let's see if I can just bring some attention to what I think of the differences between stocks and, and futures. So since I never before actually said it didn't work on that but I thought why not? So I wrote an article titled exactly Trend Following Doesn't Work on Stocks. Mostly to see if I can, you know, turn some heads. Uh, in the article I explained, really, uh, in my view it's semantics. There are some differences. If you take the exact model you're running on, on diversified trend following on futures and now you run it on you know, a bunch of stocks instead, the exact same thing. I don't think you're going to end up very well. Um, doesn't mean the trend, the stocks don't trend. Certainly they do trend. But there are slight differences. I want to highlight in the article what the differences are and what the, um, uh, the pitfalls are, what to take into account when you're dealing with stocks. And therefore the headline, the slightly provocative headline. My main point, I believe, it's been a while since I wrote that one, but I believe my main point was this. If you do trend following on futures, you have a lot of different, no, you have a lot, you have a small number of markets. You have, depending on how you look at it, 40, 50, 60 highly liquid futures markets you can, you can trade, uh, that most people trade, with very different profile. So you have markets with low correlation to each other. You have, uh, if you look at corn and you look at, uh, I don't know, bonds, you have limited correlation between them. Therefore, you have some advantages in terms of, um, of, of, of um, diversification when you combine these things. Now, if you trade a hundred stocks, you have a large component of beta in there, meaning that in a bull market, they're all going to move up more or less. In a bear market, they're more or less going to move down. And point being, since you don't have the same cover of, of diversification, you need to take it into account, both in terms of when you build the model and your expectations for how to perform. In a futures model, if you build it well, you can perform, you can expect that probably you have a low correlation to equity markets in the end. You don't necessarily lose money when the S&P goes down, or don't necessarily gain when it goes up. But if you do a trend following model on just a bunch of stocks, you're probably going to have quite a bit of correlation to the index. It affects your your, your uh, should affect your design of the model. It should affect your your uh, your expectations for what comes out of the model. So no, I mean I decided to use I decided to use a different terminology to make a point that that was it. I have no problem with trend following working on stocks. It's simply a matter of using different terminology to highlight the point. Yeah, what I've found is that um, 
Well, it's sort of getting back to your quote. Uh, trend following is a portfolio strategy. To run trend following on a single market is just begging to get hit badly. So I think if it's stocks only, yeah, I mean, that's a problem. You know, it's not going to be as good as stocks, currencies, commodities, and fixed income. If it's commodities only, it's not going to do that well. If it's uh, bonds only, you know, it's not that great. So it's not just a single market, but even a single uh, sector, you know, or taking that sector away, I think it uh, diminishes the portfolio. I mean, it is kind of a bummer that the clients out there, CTA land, they want some crisis alpha. And then we're like, well, you know, I'm running a business. I have to put food on my table. So do you mind if I trade a few equities because it makes my performance better? Sometimes uh, 2013, for instance, stocks are the only thing that's moving. And uh, that's the only thing that's trending. So I'd like to maybe just go ahead and create this uh, more perfect portfolio rather than um, always trying to meet uh, other people's needs of, of, of a more perfect hedge. So I think that's kind of a, a business issue or whatever. But um, that's where I thought. Um, and then, of course, I like to use the single names. And in the single names, I think you can find some stocks that are not uh, correlated with each other or necessarily correlated with the S&P. And then you run all of this back test and this data and you're like, wow, these are independent markets. And then you get a, a crash and you're like, whoa, they're not so independent. So you're kind of sitting there thinking, well, I've got a diversified portfolio of equities. Um, I know I'm going to get hit in a, in a crash. Maybe they're all going to go down. So hopefully with my trend and my equities that are not so correlated with each other or the S&P, hopefully I'll be short or um, flat. And so I won't get hit as bad um, performance-wise when the stocks do crash. But this is sort of uh, what I've come across in trying to trade single stocks for 20 years or 30 years. I don't know. I mean, from day one, I was just obsessed with this whole idea. No, but it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, so that's why I mean, I use the term momentum. Uh, I think in the article I said momentum works on stocks, but trend following does not, which is uh, splitting hairs. But oh, what does that but, mean? Um, time series momentum or cross-sectional momentum? Time series momentum in this case. So basically, I made this. I, I made a distinction in the article mainly to make the point. Uh, point being, after my first book, a lot of people were saying this seems to work great on futures, but I don't have enough money to trade futures. Can I just take this model and, and apply it on stocks? I said, no, please don't do that. I, I don't really want to, you know, come and explain to your, your kids why their, their, their college trust fund is gone. Uh, it's not going to work out for you uh, for many reasons. But clearly there is, well, autocorrelation if you want to, depending on how you want to classify the phenomenon. But there, there are, there's trending behavior in stocks. The problem is they all tend to trend at the same time and take a hit at the same time. Uh, that and also the, uh, the obvious problem it's a related one. Uh, I often get the question as well, can't we just use ETFs then? Not really. One, because you don't have enough coverage. Uh, you can't take a commodity ETF and say that... Uh, I had somebody once who, who desperately tried to argue that a commodity ETF containing uh, 20 different commodities is by default diversification. Said, not, not really. I mean, you long all of them or you short all of them, so you can't really... Yeah, anyway. Uh, that's one problem. The other obvious problem with doing ETFs, even if you had full coverage of everything, is the, um, their cash instruments. You have little possibility to, to get any sort of leverage on this. 
And even if you do, the, that leverage is going to be really expensive. So I'm not a big fan of running these kind of models on, on too much cash instruments. Getting some of them in that is perfect for diversification, but not primarily. Take it away, Niels. Yeah, no, I mean, I um, like like Jerry said, Andreas. Uh, you know, your your first book was uh, you know a very very interesting read and and very inspirational. I completely forgotten, by the way. I was looking at it this uh, this morning in uh, preparation for our conversation. I didn't even realize that that you had also some comparisons to to Don in there, which I'd forgotten. But of course, back then I didn't work for Don. It didn't mean anything, anyways. But it was quite uh, quite fun to see that. But I decided that. My my questions, and I've got a bunch of them as well. We'll see how many we'll get through. I was going to try and 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 think of some of the questions we get from our audience uh, every week, and try and put some of those questions uh, to you. But I think maybe um, some of them will also be obviously tilted from just my own curiosity. But maybe just to set the scene, and and just again, people are, 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 who listen to us every week, they 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 hear the same, they hear a lot of the same stuff we say. We repeat ourselves a lot, I guess. Um, and uh, so I wanted to start out with just you um, giving your opinion. I mean, when people talk about uh, trend-following strategies, um, we often say, well, there's only so many ways you can do trend-following, meaning there are not that, not that many of them. And I was just curious uh, from your sort of uh, big-picture point of view whether, uh, you know, the various very well-known type of uh, trend-following strategies, whether, you know, breakout, whether it be price volatility, you have moving average crossover, you have time series momentum, and maybe there's a few others. But in all of your research, have you do, do you think of them as being the same, meaning actually it doesn't really matter which one you dive into and that, you know, adopt as your child uh, when you want to get into trend-following? I think that's sort of one of the things we often, you know, get asked, you know, so what kind of trend following should I be focusing on? What's your view on that address? I don't think the, the, the broad outline of the methodology matters that much. I mean, whether or not you use, I don't know, moving averages, breakouts, or, you know, what, what kind of exact method you use to define the trend, I think you're going to end up more or less with the same. There are details that can matter in the long run, but overall, say the asset mix Will matter a lot more. I mean, whether or not you use, I don't know, certain sort of type of breakout or, or uh, some smooth price action or whatever you use, it's you're going to get more or less the same thing. I mean, you know, you look at the portfolio, the, the holdings, the list of holdings for, for de- different managers, they look the same. What differs is mostly the asset mix differs, differs a lot between funds. Uh, the time frame can at times differ. Although it used to be that everybody was, well, everybody, uh, most were operating on very similar time frames before. Um, so you have the risk level. I mean, some are, are, are running on very high risk, meaning very high volatility and often achieving very, very much higher results in the long run, but you know, at the cost of higher risk, if you want to see volatility as risk, which we can probably discuss all evening if we, if we like to. Um, sure. But no, I, I don't think that matters so much. I mean, look at something dead simple. Uh, it's a test for you guys to do at home. Compare the exact holdings you would get if you run, say, your favorite breakout model or whatever you want to look at, and then you compare it to something simple like uh, look at the price level 12 months ago and the price level today, and that's your only trading input. right? So if, if 
we're higher today than a year ago than we're long, otherwise we're short. I mean, obviously you don't want to go trade like that, but use it as an analytical input and check the portfolio you would theoretically get. Uh, and you will see that you, you get more or less the same as your other models. So how big difference is it? I'd say that the, the diversification and the, uh, the allocation, that is, you know, how much do you buy of each and which markets you trade that matters much more. Yeah, I'm not surprised uh, by you saying that. I think that's uh, also our own kind of uh, view on on this. Um, I want to set the scene a little bit for for the next uh, question for those who may not yet have uh, read Andreas's first book called Following the Trend, uh, which I highly recommend. Actually, just uh, for you to know, Andreas, it's it's usually when people ask me what book should I read, and obviously you don't want to give them a list of of too many to start out with. But I would say actually yours is one of the first ones I would mention. Because because I think it's incredibly practical, and uh, and as Jerry was saying, uh, what he liked about the book was also the fact that you uh, compared a a what you called a core strategy um, to uh, some of the uh, largest uh, managers uh, in the business. So let me just uh, for for the audience at least set the scene and and talk about what that core strategy was because it was relatively simple. One, you would pick a universe of about fifty markets, I believe, and you would divide them in to five sectors i'm not so sure whether this sec whether there was any any um benefit i can't remember now whether the sectors meant anything or whether you would just risk the same amount of market uh, risk per market regardless of the sector but then you would go on and say okay let me put in a simple filter for for uh, for the signals so you uh, for for long trades you would want the 50-day moving average to be higher than the 100-day moving average and then you use a relatively simple uh, kind of 50-day uh, breakout uh, model, uh, buying 50-day high, selling 50-day lows, etc. You would use a relatively uh, low risk uh, per trade. There was some ATR, uh, average to range-based uh, position sizing, and you would have a relatively simple stop rule. So if you were long and the market had moved up, you would basically get out if the market moved three standard or three ATRs uh, away from its highest closing price since the position went on. So something I think a lot of people can get their head around. Um, and then you went on to show how this strategy would compare to, as I mentioned, some of the best uh, managers uh, in, in, in the world. And the strategy um, compared very well. Uh, again, I don't remember if you were comparing gross uh, return from the strategy versus net returns of the managers. I don't know. Doesn't really matter. The point is, it was doing really well. My my big complaint about it, Andreas, is that the uh, the book was written as um, eight nine years ago. So the whole experiment stops in 2011. We just don't know what happens after 2011. So I was curious to know whether you had any suspicion maybe you actually kept running this model from time to time in your own spare time but i mean there's been a lot of focus on precisely the last decade you know some people might even call it the lost decade for trend followers so i'm curious to know whether you think this relatively simple approach actually actually have continued to do well uh, either in its own right but but also maybe even more interestingly how it would have continue to compare to uh, to the managers you were using in, in, in this uh, little uh, experiment? Uh, first of all, the, the cost of things were included. I I loaded a uh, 2 and 20 cost structure on the um, on the strategy as okay. well. Cool. So yeah. that's, that was in there. But what happened since? Well, there's some problems with comparing with 
the funds going forward. And of course, first of all, uh, thank you both to, to, to Jerry and to Don for not suing me for putting their track record in the book and comparing them. I'm sure I um, might sound funny to you guys, but I actually took steps to make myself uh, very expensive to sue over that in case somebody really got offended. But as it turns out, that was wasted money on my part because nobody ever tried. But I, 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 I hardened my structure a bit before that just in case. Uh, so what happened after? Well. The strategy has done okay, I'd have to say. Not stellar, not super. It's done okay. Uh, it's in line with the business. But the problem is this, that the business is changing. I mean, how many pure trend followers do we have anymore? Not that many. You know, a lot of people, a lot of the funds started going into more and more well, other things. They started diversifying, they started adding sub-strategies, which grew in, in allocation. And that's always a conversation I have now when I allocate. If I put on my, my, my other hat for a while, the, uh, the allocator hat, sometimes I would be looking for a pure trend follower because I, I want to have a building block. I just want to allocate money to trend following. And I get managers with a good track record saying that the great part is that now we only have 50% trend following and we have all these other things in there. And yeah, great, but you know, now it's not pure trend following anymore. And that's what I actually wanted in this particular case. So the problem is comparing many of the, the ones I mentioned as well are, they have morphed over time. Um, as usual, I, I hate to mention any particular one because I, there might still be somebody out there who lacks a sense of humor about being mentioned in these kind of books. So comparing it is it's difficult, but to be honest, in the past five years or so, I haven't followed up as in, I haven't done a correlation analysis in quite a few years on this book. Uh, maybe I should do that. I had some requests to do an update or more, more, more than once. Yeah, I know that Mefaber uh, was also mentioning that uh, because I was listening to your interview with him uh, as well. And, uh, you know, probably it's not worth uh, to write a whole book about it, but I think a little paper updating this. And, and you're right. I mean, some of the names mentioned in your book, I wouldn't consider them as pure trend, or at least they have another strategy now that they would say is their pure trend. And then they have their original program. But I mean, I mean some of them, I would still say, are, are, are pure trend. And, and some of them, uh, once you get to know a little bit about their strategy, actually, at least one of them that springs to mind is is not very dissimilar to your core strategy. So, of course, uh, as 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 trend following geeks as we are, we are of course uh, interested in this stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I've I've got a bunch of questions, but I'm going to let uh, Moritz uh, uh, jump in here because uh, my next question is in in on a different uh, topic. So, uh, Moritz, if if you wouldn't mind um yeah sure um happy to uh to jump in again um andres i want to come back to the topic of diversification and you know you and jerry you spoke about the stocks and you know i guess if uh, if, if i were just for a second assume i'm working for a firm that al only allows me to trade stocks right and, and no other asset only stocks and equities and um you know, if that were the case, then I'd say, well, I'm going to trend follow the stocks as opposed to trading them long only buy and hold because long only buy and hold comes with really terrible drawdowns. And, you know, the, the sharp ratio of a long only buy and hold equity strategy, if you want to call it, is, is probably worse than if you apply trend following techniques to it. So but but then assume that, you know, all of a sudden you're allowed to trade more than um, the equities and all of the asset classes are opened up to you. How do you then go about diversification in a trend-following portfolio? I mean, how do you how do you build the thing? 
how do you decide on the number of markets and how do you decide which markets you're going to be trading? Well, you figure out first what you want to accomplish. Uh, in my view, I mean, it's a problem, of course, if you don't know where to start, then you probably start with the mindset of, well, I just want to make money. But it's not that simple, is it? I mean, you're looking for some sort of return profile, at least if you do this for a living. If, you, if you're on the professional side, you're, you're just not looking for, 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 for profit. You're looking for some sort of return profile. It's very, very unusual for somebody in the business as an employee of, of some investment firm to just get a brief of just go out and make money. You probably have a specific brief you need to follow. What kind of returns from what? What kind of uh, correlation to, to, to whatever? What kind of volatility patterns are we looking for? But on the future side, though, I mean, if you now have no constraints whatsoever, on the future side, the nice part is, well, good and bad, that there's a limited number of markets you can consider to begin with. It's not like stocks, you know, where you, where you have uh, tens of thousands of stocks to pick from. It's not that many futures, really, you, you can trade. So you can pretty much include all of them, because they're not all going to give you a trading signal on whatever model you're running anyway, right, at the same time. So most likely, if you have a decent amount of, of capital to, to trade, and your example is a professional, so probably does have that, trade all of them, apply it on anything that's of interest, anything that's liquid enough. And you're going to find that once you start narrowing the, the for liquidity and so on, you'll end up with, well, depending on your criteria, between 50 and 100 different markets, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, right. But, you know, now you're trading the five-year nodes and the 10-year nodes at the same time, and they're very highly correlated most yep. of the time, as are heating oil and crude, right? Yep. And so if if the rule is to just say, let's trade all the markets, and, um, you know, that, that may not be the right thing to do. See what I mean? From a risk-adjusted well, return point of view. Well, that depends on what kind of allocation model you have, right? I mean, if you have a very simple approach to, 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 to risk or to allocation, and you might just see every position as an independent item in a, in a vacuum, right? And in that case, absolutely, you have a point. You, you can't just, if you have one risk unit, however, however you define that, and you take one risk unit per position, sure, uh, you have a big trend in, in uh, treasure markets, and now you're long all of them, right? If you have a more complex risk allocation model, you probably have some sort of covariance matrix involved, you, you have some sort of restraints on, on different, uh, different themes. In that case, trade all of them because once you long crude oil you get a signal to go long heating oil that signal will also tell you to, to reallocate and to change the uh, um, the allocated amount to each one either that or which i also don't have a problem with i, I am actually i actually see a, a benefit on the completely opposite way, way of looking at it as in if you have no restraint at all and you just take all of them. So you take all of the all of the treasure positions at once. You have a massive risk in treasury. You have a big corner risk, right? But in the end, a large part of the gain in, in trend falling per se is from comes from corner risk, from, from concentrated risk. So yes, it's something you've got to decide for yourself. You know, what kind of risk do you want? If you're happy to take the extreme concentration risk and go for the big bucks, sure, go for that as long as you're aware of it. Or if you're more concerned about keeping the, the volatility on, on a certain level, you keep, you're keeping uh, your, your overall return profile on a certain level, well, then you need to take into account that positions are similar and scale down the other ones, right? It all depends on what you're looking for. There's, there's no right or wrong in my view. There's no, this is the right way to do it. Okay, cool. Jerry, what's on your mind uh, now?
Um, well, another um, crazy idea that I have, and you talked about this on MEPS podcast, and I was really interested in all of this, and uh, I love your quote here. And it was, uh, put all your money in trend following? No, don't put all your money in anything. Equity markets are still one of the worst asset classes if you look at the volatility-adjusted returns. It's still one of the worst-looking ones. So my idea, though, is that, yes, you put all of your money in trend following or systematic trading. And, uh, but because I agree, equity markets are one of the worst asset classes, but it's the worst asset class because it's not wrapped in trend following. You don't take small losses. You don't have a systematic rules-based approach. You don't have an exit strategy. You're just long. And um, so what's wrong with uh, searching the world over for hundreds of, or as many as possible, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, long, short, massive diversification, lots of single names, uh, stocks, or indices that are different, and wrapping it up in this risk control in this uh, capital preservation thing we call trend following. And uh, apart from buy and hold being, uh, over the past 10 years, the greatest investment of all time, but I think you may sort of say at this point in time, well, I don't know if I can uh, really rely upon that. I think I'm going to rely upon this idea that it's still one of the worst asset classes if uh, volatility adjusted. We're going to have the 50%, 60% drawdown. So what's, what's wrong with... Um, not trying to find more securities and crazy and uh, OTC markets or whatever. Just make it your life's mission to have as much diversification with shorts um, and utilize uh, systematic trend, long, medium, short, whatever. And uh, in this way to build this portfolio that is the safest thing possible and that doesn't suffer from, uh, because anything without trend following long only could possibly be the worst asset class uh, of, you know, out there <clears throat> because that's really the problem with stocks is that uh, there's, no, there's no trend, there's no uh, capital preservation. I'm a very big believer in diversification on all levels, not just on the trading strategy level, but diversification between strategies, between investment products, between investment, between anything really. Uh, problem because I just don't like losing money, not big anyway. I mean, you know, losing money is part of the game, but uh, I don't want to spin it. Personally, I would never want to be in a situation where I have a theoretical loss of, say, losing half my net worth in a year. I don't want to have the theoretical possibility. I think if you invest in one single thing, I mean, no matter how good that is, you find a brilliant trend model. You're applying this on, on a large number of markets. You're seeing excellent returns over the, year, over the years. It's one model. And you might still get this 40, 50% loss. Now you lost half of, you, you might. I'm saying it's not possible. I, it's, not, it's not impossible. I mean, if you find a model that produces excellent returns without drawdowns over long term, that's absolutely brilliant and more power to you. But I haven't. I found models that produce good results, but they have good years, they have bad years. I have uh, friends and colleagues out there running different type of models, models that I don't have the knowledge for or the capacity for, and I'm very happy to allocate to them. So for me, my point of view is I'm doing my best with what we're managing, 
but I also recognize we can't do everything and other people do great things. I'm happy to, to give guys like you, Jerry, some, some allocation because you, know, you can do stuff that we don't want to be doing. Overall, my overall return curve with everything in it would probably look better in the long run with lower risk because totally different approaches. Oh, one final. Do you, I, I'm sure you've seen the research. Uh, there's been a few papers out, AQR research. Uh, we're all big fans of uh, AQR and Cliff and uh, <clears throat> their contribution, thought leader. I'm sure, and I think there's been other research as well that's been put out there about uh, trend following over the past 10 years. And according to the ones that I've read in AQR, it's the underperformance of CTAs you know, to the degree that there has been any um, is totally due to the lack of big trends. Do, did you agree with that or is that what you, have you done research that confirmed that or do you think it's worse than that uh, um, for CTAs? I mean, I'm, I see the biggest problem is the, uh, for me, the biggest problem with trend following. And don't get me wrong, I, I am a big fan of trend following, but clearly we have seen the trend following returns have gone down the last, say, decade compared to a few decades before that. I think, for me, the biggest issue is uh, the interest rate environment. The trend following benefited massively, and rightly so, by, uh, by a high, level, a high interest rate level that was slowly declining. Uh, one, because of, obviously, the, uh, the return on, on free cash, but more importantly, by riding the, uh, the long bond trends. Bonds obviously going up when yields are going down. So that trend was hugely important back then. I think trend following is doing just fine without it, but I wouldn't expect you know 1990s kind of returns because there was a whole different type of environment. That and one thing that I have no real scientific uh, backing for this one, but in my view, one problem is this um, event-driven world that we ended up in. We have a much more concentration risk on single points in time. We had slightly easier here the past couple of years, but we had some years where it felt horribly because all the time there was a single point in the near future that everything depends on, be it a, a U.S. debt ceiling discussion or you know some these kind of big things. There were uh, referendums, there was, uh, there, was, uh, there was a Brexit, there was US presidential elections, there was a one point in time where everything turns up or down on news coming out. And we got this increased correlation around these points. I think trend following was, was a bit hurt on that. I, th I see that as having eased a little bit recently, but globalization, that's, that's what we get, right? Uh, you go back around 40 years, you probably didn't have the same problem with uh, this global phenomenon. Not lack of trends, I mean, we had many great trends. I, from a purely non-scientific point of view, I don't see that issue. Then again, I'm not really going to go out there and argue with, uh, with, with Cliff and these guys. I think they say something, I can, uh, I can disagree with them on a podcast, if I get in the same room, I'm going to tell them how much how impressed I am by the research exactly <laughs> <laughs> I think we all feel that way uh, but uh, I mean just on that point just just before I dive into my my uh, set of questions Andreas um, I mean I think those points you mentioned about oh the world is moving so fast there's a lot of 
quote-unquote event risk there's news flows and uh, i think uh, one of the i mean there's a big article out in february uh of 2019 declaring really trend following dead yet again yeah. and they came out with all of these arguments um and actually a lot of the arguments have persisted through 2019 but yet 2019 was a great year the best since 2014 so i i am just very cautious about declaring anything not working and i think yeah of course i mean maybe and actually coming back to your previous point, Andreas, about not being afraid of concentrated risk in a portfolio, I think that's so true. I mean, why we should because concentrated risk in a in a trend following portfolio, it's 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 an it's it's a way to express conviction, right? We're convict we have conviction in those trends right now. That's why we're you know that's why our risk uh, budget is allocated in in a certain direction from time to time and if if you go back 40 years or 45 years if we look at our 45 years of history there's been plenty of times where we've had concentrated risk um because that's where the trends were um so um yeah no i would i would caution about that and i actually don't particularly think that that um and certainly we haven't seen it on our side necessarily that that uh, the last 10 years has been dramatically worse than 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 previous i i accept the 90s were really good um but who who's to say that we can't have uh, that the 20s won't be really good i mean if people looked at equity returns after 2010 for for the previous decade they wouldn't be too excited now they look at them and they're they're thrilled right so it's it i think it's tough but anyways i want to go in a completely different direction and again trying to distill some of the questions we've had uh, over uh, the past uh, year year and a half on on the podcast and this is to try and help people understand uh, maybe some of the finer details in terms of back testing um, but again keeping it on a i think hopefully relatively simple level i want to ask you and i know you've done some work on this in your latest book so i'm not I, and unfortunately, admittedly, I haven't read your latest book yet. What? But uh, what? Yeah, but 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 um, you know, you, I'm sure you can you can uh, give us some some really good points. So let me break it down very simply. First of all, um, when you have to select your parameters, uh, whether it's a trend following, pure trend following uh, system, or another sort of systematic approach, you obviously have to make some choices in terms of parameters. So my first question to you is really. Are you a fan of always keeping parameter selection universal to all markets? Or do you think uh, applying certain parameter combinations to a group of markets or even down to a point where you say, actually, I'm going to choose certain parameters only for this market. But of course, I'll choose more than one combination. So I want a bit of diversification. I mean, how do you where do you sit in terms of should we do everything the same across all markets or should or should we do um, acknowledge that some groups of markets have maybe different behavioral ways of trading or even down to the single market um, can you successfully apply uh, individual parameters to a market without without of course as we know uh, the risk of, of of overfitting well first i think that a really a stable model, a, a robust model, can work fine on the same parameters on almost anything, if it's a robust model. But I think there are sometimes cases for doing something different. The danger, in my view, is doing something different based on your uh, subjective views. I mean, your experience that, say, uh, I don't know, corn behaves differently, so I need to have a different parameter for it. That, that can be very dangerous. 
uh, I think it's much better in that case to to quantify what, what does different mean. What is it? Is, is it because of, of different term structure? Uh, is that perhaps why why you think it's behaving differently, or is it a volatility pattern, or what is it? Maybe you can implement this or incorporate this in your rules. So instead of setting a rule saying if the market is named the following, then trade differently. I think that that's dangerous, but more of if the market has the following mathematical properties, then we adapt something, which is, in my view, more robust because the behavior, whatever it is that you have in your mind that is different with a certain market can come and go, right? They can change. So your memory of... Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, I was referring to being different in saying that if you use just one set of parameters across a whole portfolio, obviously some markets will do well. Yeah. But then others you'll see, well, actually, they don't really cope very well with these kind of parameters. That That's what I meant. Hmm. I didn't mean that I was making a call on, I think, corn is different. I mean, who knows what it is, but but the data will tell me that it seems different. That's what I meant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's all part of the, the usual follow-up process, right? I mean, if you get results it you don't expect, you need to reevaluate. Is this normal variation? I mean, is this... Is this just normal behavior that you got bad performance on some markets? Yeah, it happens, right? Or did you fundamentally miss something? Has something changed or did you make a mistake somewhere? That's a tough part of the process, right? Reevaluating. Because what is it, the, the, old, the old expression of, of rule one, never change, your, never change your rules, never break your rules, right? And rule number two is know when to break your rules. It's, uh, it's impossible. Clearly, uh, having a dogmatic view of never change your rules, it's probably not going to work out for you in the long run because sooner or later a situation comes along that it was just impossible to, to, to foresee before, right? I mean, sometimes you have to adapt. Like if you if you had a model that uh, say was trading Swiss franc against uh, against euro, what was that now? Uh, is it four or five years ago? I, I forget when when the one point two yeah. level broke. If you had a trend model that told you to, uh, to, to, to be in that position at that time, you probably wanted to override it. And these situations, you know, backtesters don't know about these possibilities. So, re-evaluating no, re is difficult. And sure. yeah, sure. sorry, sure. bad answer. I think <laughs> another, no, no, that's fine. And I think another question that, that I, I, a lot of uh, on people's mind, and that is again, uh, and we certainly uh, obviously had some more discussions when we had our live event in New York last year with a bunch of people, uh, great guys who were building their own trading portfolios now, and then some of them up and were already up and running. I mean, the next kind of philosophical question would be to say, well, let's just say you have your 50 market portfolio and you have 20, 25 years of, of data in this case. And you, let's just say you apply universe, you want to apply universal parameters to this um, universe of markets. Um, but what if you see that there are two or three markets that really hasn't made no money or consistently loses money it just doesn't work i mean are you of the thought and say well then just take them out or are you in the camp of saying well you know we have no idea what's going to happen in the next 25 years so we need to keep them in so where do you sit on that can you figure out why they don't work is the first thing i would look at i mean is it just something random or is it some property of these markets that make them not work uh, i mean is it Sometimes it could be real-world things. I mean, if you're looking at, I don't know, something like star markets where you have some, some natural barriers and natural behavior, uh, or you're looking at something where, I know, I keep mentioning, I'm a big fan of looking at term structure for analytical purposes, but maybe there's something in there that, that is a problem. 
But if you can't explain why it doesn't work, it just doesn't work, it's a difficult one. Then it's a very subjective call to just take it out because the backtest didn't work, that, that can backfire. I mean, that thing that performed brilliantly for 25 years in the backtest, that might be the worst performance for the next 10 years, right? In, and in terms of backtest, um, you know, what nowadays, uh, when you look at these things, um, do you look at data as kind of pre-crisis, post-crisis? What's the minimum amount of data you want to run a backtest on to feel that you kind of uh, have kind of quote unquote seen it all? I know there's a limit to how much data at the end the futures markets will give you, but I mean, um, do you, and and do you rely more on 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 recent data? Some people I've heard, uh, you know, prefer that and is less uh, worried about data from the '90s and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Where where what are, what are your thoughts on these? This things? is a, in my view, a very complicated subject. The problem is, theoretically, as soon as you back test on a set of data, you have not diminished the value of that data. Right? I mean, you run your backtest in the last 10 years of all your, your markets. You, you, you run your backtest on all the data you have, right? Now you have reduced the value of the data you have. And that's the problem, how to get past this, this issue. Because the next time you run a model, next time you design a model, you're going to have in your head, you, you, in, your, in your mind, you, you, you know what the markets are, how they, what worked and what didn't. Now you have a, already have a bias in your backtest. Now when you design your hundreds model, you have already implicitly curfitted it to the data you already knew. This is a very difficult subject, and I think if we get uh, 10 PhDs, data, data scientists in the room together, they could have an argument the whole day here while we, while we eat popcorn and watch. Uh, what do I do? Well, I try to apply reasonable, well, reasonable amount of, of caution in how to use the data, backtest on small amounts, uh, use other other data chunks for verification. The reason I, I normally don't mention this stuff in, in my books is because it's a big topic, it's a complicated topic, and quite frankly, it's a boring topic. Uh, it <laughs> we all want to do the same thing, right? What we want to do is we want to test a model on the last 40 years of data, update it, 10 times until it works and then call the day and say, now the model is great because look at my back test. But that's not going to work out for you. Uh, because now you have, back, you, have, you have already fitted it so much by, by knowing in your head what was going to happen, right? And updating the model. Now, you, you have to back test a smaller amount of data. And the problem is that we don't have enough data in futures world. So that's clearly a big issue. Hopefully a, a different, slightly different question. Did you would you recommend uh, right now 2020 for CTA trend following to use the whole 40 years, uh, or the markets have changed so much and the world has changed so much? Let's look at the last 10 or 15 or even less. So, at what point do you sort of say, "Hey, I love this large sample size. I haven't tortured the data too much. I haven't contaminated it too much." Let's say, but um, regardless. Yes, continue using 40 years, or as much as you can get your hands on, or no, uh, let's sacrifice that because um, computers and too many trend followers, and uh, we need to concentrate, uh, accept a lower sample size of trades historically, and concentrate, because the data, the more recent five or 10 year data is more relevant. 
I say that more recent data is more relevant, but we also need to understand how it behaves in different type of market regimes and market environments. And in the last 10 years, we just had the longest equity bull market in history, and that's not going to happen in the next 10 years. So if you just look at the last 10 years of data, is it likely that we get 10 more years, the same as the last 10 years? I'd say it's, that's not terribly likely. So you have an issue there, right? And even worse, we have a new generation of, of analysts and, and quants out there building models who only have experience the last 10 years. We have a whole new generation of people in the business who simply cannot conceive the idea that that stocks might actually not perform in the next, next 10 years. And that's an issue. I mean, I'm mentioning stocks because we all know that stocks have a major impact on, on everything else in the long run, right? Whether we have an equity bull market or bear market will impact the performance of, of um, good or bad, but it will impact the performance on everybody on everything else in, 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 in uh, conjunction. Um, now, it's more important, but, but we have to look at everything. Uh, you have to look at different market periods, high interest rates, low interest rates. So just as we were getting into the details with Andreas uh, on this point, um, we actually lost the connection uh, for some reason. And so uh, rather than you waiting for us to potentially recover those files, I thought I would jump in and just uh, let you know that we're going to have a little bit of an abrupt ending to this week's episode. But of course, uh, we will try and recover the full part and uh, publish that as, uh, as part number two with our conversation with Andreas Klino um, as we got into many more uh, good subjects, I think. Uh, for this week, let me just say that uh, the BTOP50 index uh, is up 0.89% for the month of January, which of course also is the year-to-date number. Same for the SOCGEN CTA index. Uh, the SOCGEN trend index up 1.14% for January so far whilst the short-term traders index is down 31 basis points and the bridge alternatives index is up 0.75% so far. So we're going to wrap up this week's conversation a little bit abruptly. Apologize for that. We'll hopefully uh, have this all sorted out in the next few days. Um, but um, in the meantime, from Andreas, Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.